This episode is sponsored by Lendex and Tangleswap. Lendex is a decentralized IOTA-based multi-cross-chain decentralized application and lending protocol. This is IOTA's lending and stablecoin. And about Tangleswap, well, whether you are looking for a world-class decentralized exchange or simply want to make the most out of your tokens by staking, liquidity farming or investing, Tangleswap puts the whole universe of DeFi at your fingertips. Three, two, one. Welcome back to a new episode, guys. Uh, with me, I got Hans. For those that doesn't know him, he's a developer at IOTA, and this is the most requested episode by far. So finally, welcome to the podcast, Hans. Yeah, hello. <laughs> finally, we made it. I mean, we talked uh, very often. You asked for uh time for an interview and i never had time i was busy so yeah i'm really looking forward to finally speak yeah i've been uh spamming your um your dms there for quite some months now um i'm understandable you got stuff to do uh and as usual like now we're pretty much closer to if we did it some months ago so it's probably a little bit more interesting to do it right now so i'm really looking forward to to hear what your take on everything is and i'm pretty sure that the the people listening is pretty keen on it too um before we we kind of do the uh, the general questions, could you tell me in short how you ended up in the IOTA Foundation? Oh, that's actually kind of a little bit of an odyssey, I would have to say. Um, so I was I was uh, running an online business um, before I joined the IOTA Foundation, and we were actually accepting crypto as uh, payments, and it was the favorite payment option for a lot of our customers. Um, and then in 2017, with the rise of the like the, the first big rise of the cryptocurrencies, uh, Bitcoin became much more like popular, I would say, right? And with it also the fees rose uh, up to the point where it actually didn't make much sense for us anymore to accept payments in Bitcoin, which we did before, uh, simply because we had, um, like we, we were selling uh, our stuff for like five to $10 a month was like a subscription-based uh, service. Um, and we were looking for alternatives, like alternative payment options that we could potentially use. And I was like looking at the crypto space and I discovered IOTA more or less during the time when it got the most attention, like when it rose up to $5.70 or something mm. uh, on the open market. And I looked into the technology and talked about the CFP and the entire vision of a network where users could just send money around like an email without having to spend fees or like paying miners uh, sounded very compelling and also what kind of surprised me was that the concepts that IOTA was trying to use, like this idea of blocks referencing each other, kind of made a lot of sense to me, even for somebody who didn't have a lot of background knowledge on, on cryptocurrencies itself, because I've never really looked into the technology before. Um, so I became an active part of the community and also bought a lot of tokens in December in 2017, more or less at the all-time high, um, and started hanging out in Discord and talking to the people involved. And yeah, I was I was very excited, and I really thought that IOTA would would like start to become very big very soon. Um, and then, well, we all know that it didn't really work. I mean, the algorithms were broken. People tried to uh, fix the algorithms, and there were patches after patches, and nothing really worked. And once people started to realize that the price, uh, that, that the technology had issues, which would most probably not be so easy to fix, the price started to go down. And well, there was I <laughs> having bought at more or less the all time high. Um, I had to essentially decide to 
sell all of my tokens when I was in a significant loss by that time. Um, or as a community member who had like been talking to the developers and to all of the people involved um, to maybe try to help the project to actually solve the problems. Because, I mean, as I said, in theory, it sounded all very reasonable. Um, and then I think in the summer of 2018, I got an offer from Mark. Um, or like he approached me and, and and asked me if I would maybe be interested in joining the foundation and helping to fix the problems and like finish the product essentially. Mm, and yeah, then then I joined. Cool. Um, so we we all know that we have been there. Most of us buying at the at the high. You still still have those premium tokens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I mean I I've bought a lot over the course of the years, like especially like in the last two years i would say yeah. um, and i've been able to like lower my entry point significantly so now i'm no longer like massively in minus but of course i'm also not really hugely in plus yet i mm. mean especially at the current prices right yeah, um, yeah I know but mean. yeah i still have all of them i've never sold a single iota <laughs> essentially wow. cool um so we have seen you uh, doing some tweets here and there, uh, and I'm always pretty exciting um, when I'm when I'm reading them because they're always some like some trigger points, right? You got kind of those fireworks, like this is going to be the best humanly possible uh, crypto in the in the world. Um, could you explain a little bit about roughly what you mean by that? Well, I mean, it, it it's kind of related to, I would say, somewhat understanding of the fundamental ideas that exist in the crypto space like when we when we realized that iota like the problems that we had in iota would not easily be fixable uh what i did was i thought like okay maybe there's another project who has solved at least a somewhat similar problem in in somewhere else you know and i started reading all of these white papers and try to understand just more of the crypto space because when i joined iota i mean i had experience coding for like 25 years or something by the time i think so I, I was a pretty good coder, at least I was assuming that I was a pretty good coder. Um, because if you're doing something for such a long time, you just become an expert almost automatically, right? Um, but I didn't have much knowledge about the, the DLT space in general, like about about uh, consensus algorithms and the limitations and all the theoretical foundations behind it and stuff like that. So I started reading all of these papers. And after, I think, maybe 100 papers or something, I realized that there were not that many new ideas that I came around. Like it, it looked like there were on, only maybe four or five, six different approaches and different variations that all the different projects used. And I tried to understand what these variations were. And I was looking for the solution and I didn't find anything. Like there was not a single project that were working into a similar direction of building like a, essentially a blockchain with a block size of one where each user could like issue their stuff uh, themselves. So there, there was no prior work or anything. So then the question was, am I wrong? Like, is my gut feeling wrong that these ideas sound reasonable and they should work? Or is maybe the entire DLT space wrong? And there is another way that nobody has ever thought about, you know? And well, I mean, I continued reading and, and, and like increased my understanding. And at some point I realized that there was one like class of DLTs that was not really covered within the space of the spectrum, how you can design your system. And that was exactly um, the, uh, the, the DLT that IOTA actually tried to build. And well, then you can, you can look at these, this design space. Like, I mean, it's, it's kind of limited. You can, you can innovate how you vote. Like at the end of the day, each 
DLT is a voting mechanism, right? Because users can propose conflicting transactions and the whole network needs to agree which transaction should win. And ideally it should win the transaction that is favored by most of the people or like a branch in case of a blockchain. So at the end of the day, it's always a voting mechanism. So if we're talking about building the best DLT, you're essentially talking about the most efficient and the fastest and the most secure voting mechanism, right? Um, and I mean, the, the, the design space is pretty limited. Like you can, you can either send votes around by querying other nodes, or you can use something like a virtual voting mechanism where you encode knowledge and opinions through references in a replicated DAG. And that's essentially one of the aspects that makes uh, made Satoshi's Nakamoto solution so powerful was that he essentially invented a mechanism to infer knowledge about what is the longest chain, like which chain got the most votes uh, by encoding these information through a simple hash uh, in the block. And then these blocks reference each other and they build this replicated data structure. And everybody, if everybody reads this data structure in the same way, then you can reach consensus without having to exchange any kind of votes. You know, Before you also had consensus mechanism, but nodes always needed to exchange nodes with uh, votes with one another to agree. And the more nodes you had, the more messaging complexity was necessary to actually reach consensus. And Satoshi solved that problem um, by using these references. I mean, it was only one of the innovations, but it was a very important one. And um, yeah, and then the, the second innovation of Satoshi Nakamura was that instead of asking every single node in the network to make decisions, you just ask a single one, right? You, in regular intervals, you just ask one single node and it's a different node all the time. So instead of asking everybody, you just ask a randomly subsampled set of nodes that exist in the network. And that was essentially his second biggest innovation, right? And so if you if you look at the, the, the consensus mechanisms that existed before Satoshi and after Satoshi, you see that there's essentially these two pillars, like the way of communication, the way how you exchange nodes, either through virtual voting or through exchanging explicit votes. And you have this idea of instead of asking everybody, you just ask randomly subsampled set. And in, I mean, this, now there's like two options for this randomly subsampled set, right? You can ask a single one. That's what blockchains do. We have a single block producer that makes a decision of how to advance the letter state in regular intervals. Or you just ask, like, let's say, like 50, 100, 200, whatever. No, it's like you can also make this committee, of course, slightly larger, right? And the and one of the reasons why Satoshi scales so good is because it just ask a single node in regular intervals. But one of the reasons why it confirms so slow is because it only asks a single node in regular intervals. Because if you're only able to collect like one opinion every few seconds, then it takes a pretty large amount of time to get a reasonable amount of opinions until you can be safe that something cannot be rolled back. And so if if you, if you assume that these two pillars of DLT design define how this DLT behaves, and I think that's actually the case, um, then there's one space that seems to be optimal in the case that, okay, you're asking not everybody, you're asking a subset, you're using these virtual voting mechanisms that Satoshi invented to reduce the messaging complexity, you get fast finality times, and it's it's the it's the it's the I don't know like the quadrant or the or the the, the region of the DLT design space that that combines all these benefits uh, that you have um, that that you can that you can possibly achieve right. Mm -hmm. So so you're pretty like convinced that the way that IOTA is moving right now is the right direction to be uh, one of the leading protocols in the space. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it's also another aspect. I've been talking about that 
before it's these like analogies to to um physics right i mean it it's it's really it has been really strange to work on this project to be honest like it's it's been a, like a bit of a dis- mixture between discovering and witnessing like i don't know it feels like the solution was already there and we just needed to find it kind of like we we had a rough idea how to do this in the beginning and we started coding and then whenever we faced a problem we had to go back to the drawing board essentially and like ask ourselves okay why does this not work what is the the cause for for our algorithms for example to fail or for to to have bugs or whatever and we were forced to kind of like simplify it to 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 just deal with this huge complexity and like break it down into smaller parts and like over time this the solution developed like or developed in a way i don't know i mean it's it it felt like it's almost forcing you into a particular direction Mm. right and the thing is like at the end we have a solution that is extremely strange like if you look at the behavior we have these superposition realities like you have version A and version B, B, they are alive for some time, right? They are like in a superposition, like in quantum mechanics. But at some point, this whole system, like the information, which one wins just collapses and the other one gets thrown away. So then we have one classical result. And it's it's very similar to physics. Like you have quantum mechanics, where you have multiple options, like the cat is dead or alive at the same time. And then you have a moment where this information, like this, this space of possibilities collapses to a singular solution. Um, and I saw all of these similarities and, and um, I've been like looking into the physics space to understand if there's been other like researchers or something that have been at least exploring similar ideas. And I stumbled upon a theory which is called the uh, transactional interpretation of quantum mechanics, which is essentially almost a one-to-one copy of what we are proposing. And it's from 1980s. I've also been talking to Ruth Kastner, which is... Uh, the expert in this in this theory and talk to her and we discussed the similarities of our technology to the to the transactional interpretation of quantum mechanics and she agrees with me that there is a huge amount of overlap and it's really interesting to see like like for me it's a it's a really interesting because it kind of resulted in in my worldview or my perception of how the universe the world everything works to completely change uh through the course of working on iota mm. Um, what what do you think needs to happen, and like where are we in terms of seeing that the market and the like the tech world start appreciating this technology? Like where where we will start to see that okay, it was actually correct. IOTA did become the base layer. I mean, there's still a lot of work, right? I mean, currently we don't even have like smart contracts deployed on the network, and I think that's also one of the biggest problems of the technology. That's just incredibly complex to to build and understand and i'm not even talking about the amount of code that is necessary to make this happen it's it's not much code but the code itself is so complicated uh simply because it spans over multiple layers and dimensions kind of like you have not just one deck you don't have two decks we have in total we have like seven or eight decks that are like directed acyclic graphs right they are all overlaid on top of each other where, where we infer information and knowledge from one until the other and like in the physics term, what physics like phys- physicists usually call this the holographic principle. So you have essentially the universe and our model, like if it would work like this, it would be holographic. So that means the reality that we see in the tangle is not the real reality. It's 
the reality, like what is truth, is constructed as a higher level ontology on all the data that you have on the underlying uh, system. But I mean, it, it's it's kind of tricky to really wrap your head around how everything works. And I think like even in, in the research department or like in, in the Goshimer team, I think there's not a single person who could say like, okay, I, I have a complete and full understanding in my head how everything works together because it's just so fucking complicated. You can you can look at individual modules and you can understand them and the modules themselves are kind of easy and simple, but now they are, but they, they were very complex before we did the refactor. Uh, and then you can, you can understand that. And I think even people who have no idea of coding or who are kind of like new to coding can understand the, 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 uh, the, the components in themselves. They're not too complex, but the, 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 like the interplay of all of these different DAGs just gives so much uh, emerging complexity. You know, this thing behaves like it's almost alive to some degree. Right. And I've also been, um, been uh, in contact with some research who are, researchers who are actually exploring similar ideas of life intelligence and stuff like that being emergent phenomena in the same way as quantum mechanics and and the theory of relativity seem to be um, uh, emergent phenomena so I'm, I'm I mean I'm really trying to explore and understand the space and see what all of these ideas lead to and there's actually a very large amount of overlap um, in the realm of a lot of different disciplines who, who are actually looking into causal relationships in the relation to like, how does cognition come into existence? You know, how does life intelligence uh, come into existence? You have these ideas of agent-centric uh, kind of software that, that behaves smart in a way to achieve one specific goal. And this is very similar to what we're doing in our software design, um, where we're essentially having all these different modules, which are like, tailored to one specific goal and the interplay of all of these components leads to what we know then as our like multiverse consensus. Mm. Uh, so I'm, I'm guessing that we're not too close to your um, your price prediction of $5,000 per MI. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was also not necessarily <laughs> a, a very realistic uh, assumption, right? Now, I'm, I'm, I mean, I've also not said that this would be that expensive. But I'm, I just said that it's not completely unreasonable to assume uh, that this could happen at some point in the future, because I think ultimately the technology will converge, or the, I'm, at least I'm hoping that the DLT space will converge around the technology that is like most efficient. If there is a singular technology that is better than anything else, why would you not build our distributed like future on that technology, right? It just doesn't mm. make sense. And especially in the context of DLTs, I think there's a very big driving for like economic and, and security aspect to it so it's, it's not just ideology and like to say okay i like this product over this product or this community is like maybe more prominent already or whatever because at the end of the day if there's like two networks and one can offer the same services a little bit faster and it's a little bit more secure and it's a little bit more efficient and cheaper, then people will just naturally converge to that technology because executing trades and doing finance and storing your assets on this more secure network is, is like in the long term, most probably a strong enough incentive to move all the other people over, right? So I think we will at some point converge to a singular platform, at least to, to a few like handful of, of, of like settlement projects and then there will be a lot a lot of like layer two projects and stuff like that building on this of course but i think when it comes to layer ones or potentially layer zeros in the future there will not be that many projects that survive i think 
Hmm. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, this being the most requested episode so far, um, I thought it was better to to ask the community what kind of questions they would like me to ask you. Um, so I have made a little bit of a list here uh, with different questions where the people are willing to, wishing to hear your opinion about. Um, the first one in, um, in his view, are there any economic or technical reasons that might prevent IOTA from becoming the next big thing? Well, I mean, there's one thing that I'm a bit worried about, um, and that is just our, I would say, like financial situation in comparison to all the big like projects that did their ICOs after 2017, because all of these projects have been able to collect hundreds of millions of dollars, right, in their ICOs, and even in the bear market that we're currently in, and with like decreasing token valuations, they still have a huge amount of firepower. Um, I mean, they can just buy users to some degree, right? They go to they go to um, events like like uh, uh, conferences and stuff like that. They present their work, they talk, they exchange, they network with other projects. They try to just grow their ecosystem. And we, as IOTA, as a nonprofit foundation, we always had somewhat limited financial resources. We cannot really do that. So IOTA is not on any conferences. IOTA is not on like taking part in these kind of ecosystem building things. And I mean, we, we, we started to create these DAOs now and also in the Shimmer network. So I think it's going to be like different in the future. Also, once we have a technology that actually works, it also, of course, changes the entire game because currently you can't really do much with IOTA apart from sending money around, right? Uh, that will hopefully change soon. Um, but I think when it comes to our economic situation compared to all the big players, I think we're a bit like behind <laughs> and I think it would be nice if we could solve that somehow, but yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a tricky question, right? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And yes, I, I think that's, that. that's kind of the only thing that I'm really worried about because I don't think that time per se, like even if it takes us now another half a year or like until next uh, autumn or something to deliver quarter side uh, on, on some productive mainnet, because of course you want to do testing and stuff like that, right? And we also need to mature the code base a little bit more and have unit tests for everything. So it's still going to take a, a while until it hits mainnet, but I think the the technology will be at a point in time, like will be at a point very soon where it's no longer questionable questionable if it works and it will also no longer be a question like how fast do you have confirmations and stuff like that so people will definitely be able to see a reliable network that works as advertised and they will know what to expect from the technology that we're building mm. um yeah good answer um what does he believe is needed for iota to do make a breakthrough in the real world well, that's a very good question. I mean, it's also something that I recently addressed in my latest blog post. I mean, it's also been quite a while since I wrote that about like tokenomics and DLTs and the use case of DLTs. And I mean, I've been, been speaking about like uh, DLTs as a new form of, of uh, what we call bookkeeping uh, for quite a while. So I see DLTs in general, like as an evolution of the way humans keep track of things, how they organize themselves and stuff like that, right? And 10,000 BC, for example, we had the invention of the first uh, first form of accounting, the single entry accounting, and it was a huge breakthrough for humanity because suddenly we were able to keep track of, of more complex organizations than just small villages with up to 150 people. And we, we essentially had the first civilizations that arose and like the first states and 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 stuff like that right and for almost 
12, no, I mean, until, until 1500 or 1400 something, um, we use this form of accounting and it, it's, it, it, I mean, it's, everybody knows how it works. You know, you have like this, this uh, table with three columns with a date and then like a small description and then like uh, some amount. So if you, if you keep track of your household cash expenses, whatever you write, like at the beginning of the month, you, you write like, okay, plus 500 euros salary. And then the next day you write like minus 30, I buy it. I, I bought like milk or something. And then the next day you do minus five. Uh, I, I went to the cinema or something. I mean, it's this arbitrary number. So, right? and then at the end of the month, you, you draw a line and you say, okay, I have like 250 euros left or something, right? So you can keep track of, of, of these kind of things. But the problem with this kind of ledger where you just have all the entries in a single list in a single account is that it becomes really hard to, to keep track and to audit and to, to uh, to maintain if this list gets very long, because imagine like a medieval merchant or whatever wants to know how much he spent on one specific topic, like rent or something in a big organization, then the larger this thing is, the more lines he need to check manually to see if the description somehow fits into this specific category. So it's very hard to answer all kinds of questions uh, towards the operational status of your organization. So then in, in, uh, at the end of the medieval times, uh, we had Luca Pacioli, I think it was 1497, but I'm not entirely sure. Uh, he invented the double entry accounting, where essentially just instead of having one account, like one list of entries, you have multiple of these accounts. And whenever you, you increase your cash holdings, for, account, for example, and you receive 300 euros, then you have another inverted account where somebody loses 300 euros, right? Like the, the guy where you get the money from kind of. So you, you modify the balance, not on the receiver side only, like your book, but you also modify the balance on the sender side kind of. And then you can look at all these different accounts and you can, for example, say, okay, how much did I receive uh, or how much did I spend on rent? And then you look on your rent account and you see all of the rents lined up and then you can sum them up. Uh, and it's much easier to audit and to take care of the of the status of such a organization and ultimately gave rise uh, to the Renaissance and the information age, industrial revolution, and like essentially up to the point where we are now, right? And uh, it's it also enabled us to build de democracies and things like that because it was much easier to audit the, the books of different economic actors and compare them and build a like a, like a, a framework for for people to operate in in, uh, in the scope of nation states and be active and increase the wealth of everybody. Um, but like auditing these books and making sure that nobody is lying about the numbers they're reporting in the context of taxes and stuff is still a manual and very tiresome process that, that takes a lot of time and effort and it's not very efficient. And you, I mean, so inefficient that you essentially only do these audits every like few years and you're like randomly selecting some companies that you send somebody who's checking the books and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And DLTs now, they go essentially one step further It's triple entry counting. So that means you don't just modify the, the balance of the sender and the receiver, but you also put the transaction, which contains the, the, the instructions, how to modify these books on a public and tamper-proof ledger. So everybody sees the same transactions. And if you start with the same book and everybody just supplies the same transactions in order, then of course you arrive at exactly the same ledger. Say, and that's how DLTs work, right? It's just a new form of accounting. So I see DLTs as a tool for humanity to organize themselves um, to, to build organizations in the internet, like in the digital realm, of course, uh, that should potentially be able to operate very efficiently, uh, that are able to 
like connect people that would otherwise have no possible way of ever interoperating with each other because they don't live in the same country is very hard to 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 uh, even hire people from another country or like interact with them right because there's like different laws and tax reasons and blah 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 so mm. doing all of that in the internet where there's no border there's no ethnicity there's no no artificial like limits you know like have you ever did he ever go to twitter and they said okay now i leave the 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 european twitter and enter the american one or something it just doesn't exist you know twitter is just this borderless interplanetary discussion platform <laughs> you mm. know it's almost like a hive mind where people can think and discuss together and and increase their knowledge and it, it's it's a really interesting interesting thing and I, I by the way i also recently saw an interview of um an ai researcher Joscha bach uh, it's a German researcher, and I've been looking into him because he's um, uh, working on um, on uh, on new forms of uh, building AGI based on uh, causality and like all of these principles that we're also using in our technology. So I'm exploring this line of thought of maybe there's some some insight to be gained from this line of uh, direction. And what he said was something that I thought was really interesting uh, because he said that. Elon Musk essentially bought Twitter because he wants to turn it into the first global like hive mind or, or like this 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 project to to see if he can bring humanity this to this point like type one civilization or something I think it's called where you have this global this, this global connectedness and people exchange ideas and think together and it's it's a really interesting thing to see Twitter in that way because it kind of is like that. I mean, you have open discussions. Of course, it's slower than a real brain, but you can still see the interaction of all these moving parts forming different narratives, gaining insight, discussing things as if it would be one big thing, you know. And he said, like, he thinks that that Elon just bought this to to because he can afford to run this experiment and see if what happens if you do this right, kind of. And he just wants to see what happens. It's an interesting idea. I don't know if he has spoken to Elon about it, if that's kind of based on some kind of insight that he gained through some discussion or if it's just something that he assumes, but it's, it's definitely an interesting idea. Yeah, it, it sounds pretty interesting. Um, but yeah, let's, uh, let's head on to the, the question. The next question is pretty new to me as well. I haven't heard about it before I rolled in, uh, in the, um, the channel. What is ZK rollups and can we do ZK on IOTA? Yeah, I mean, essentially, that's a very, very interesting question. So, so ZK rollups is zero knowledge rollups, right? Zero knowledge is, is essentially an expression for um, how you can compress information and share details or prove to somebody that you know something without revealing the information that you that you know, and also re revealing any information about uh, like how he could derive the knowledge. So, you're essentially, proving that something is an elephant without even saying it's an elephant you, you just say okay the statement is true and then the proof or like the other person can actually look at the statement as a, a math construction is usually uh, uh, usually based on uh, polynomials uh, and and you can you can essentially evaluate statements without knowing anything about the thing that you're trying to prove and you can use this information to compress computation to some degree right you can do computation off chain uh, that's essentially all of these rollups and these uh, layer twos uh, that uh, Ethereum is, for example, uh, favoring for their scaling solution, um, which allow you to do computation off-chain and then post a statement, an update on-chain, which proves that you've done a, a correct transition from one state to the next state without actually naming the state. So you're essentially compressing 
an off-chain state into a very succinct form. Um, and this allows you to get additional like throughput or because you can you can move parts of the computation to a, mm. to a different layer. Not everybody needs to execute it, right? Yeah. And it's 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 a really interesting technology simply because it prevents cheating to some degree, right? Otherwise, usually when you have like side chains or something, uh, and they are sovereign to some degree, then the and the validators can just post any kind of update anchoring on the layer one. Now they could also just lie and or like perform state transitions that don't exist and. It's it's really a bit problematic, and optimistic rollups usually work on the basis that you say, okay, you can, like, if you if you want to withdraw your funds from one of these layer twos or like these projects building on top of the layer one chain, then in the case of optimistic rollups, it takes up to two weeks to withdraw your money from this thing because you want to give the the rollup two weeks time for somebody to prove if he detects that one of these people is like malicious or something, right? And then zero knowledge rollups, I mean, you can just post a single update everybody knows immediately it's correct and it's a very interesting technology because it allows you to do these kind of things but i'm a bit skeptical i have to say uh, about the economic aspect of it because what you're essentially achieving through these zero knowledge rollups is that you're uh, building a system that has exactly the same security as ethereum itself but can host all of the activity while just posting a small update to the main chain right so then the question arises okay let's assume let, let like i mean I like to go to the extremes usually to analyze things, right? Okay, let's assume everybody goes to the rollup and nobody uses Ethereum anymore. And the rollup is the only one that posts update to Ethereum. So the security would be exactly the same. The interoperability would be almost the same, right? Like, I mean, this is just another network on top of Ethereum. But the question that remains is why do we need Ethereum then? Like, what's the purpose of the Ethereum token if everybody's using these rollups? And, and that's kind of a problem that I think is a really huge problem, actually. And also these rollups, they're not like tied to one specific pro protocol, like DIDX, for example, was a, uh, a very prominent Ethereum rollup. They just moved to Cosmos because Cosmos is like cheaper, a little bit more efficient for what they want to do. They have more sovereignty and stuff like that. So, so it becomes really hard to capture a, a reasonable amount of users for an L1 in an L2 rollup centric zero knowledge proof world kind of, you know? Mm. So what I would like to build instead would be to use a zero knowledge technology uh, where you don't prove correctness of a layer above, but I would like to prove correctness of a shard next to you, like left or right, whatever, you know, and then scale out horizontally. So instead of creating uh, this like separate layers that are economically disconnected and, and and like try to fight for the same users and you get like a fraction like a fragmentation of the entire ecosystem i think a much better approach would be to build a dag based structure where essentially one shard just proves the correctness of the shard left to it and right to it and then you just make a circle like a big shard sharding circuit space and then you can essentially prove that everybody's like nobody's lying and all the shards are honest uh, without creating these economic fragmentation in the in the sense of different economic layers and different projects that capture users and stuff like that but so far it doesn't look like there's so many projects working on this and i think it's just i mean i i guess it's because our blockchains don't really i mean there is no blockchain left or right to you that easily you know it's, it doesn't come natural whereas in the tangle it, it would become it would come very natural to to just say okay half of the network process 
half of the tango, the other network process half of the other tango. And if both halves can prove correctness to each other, then you have a sharding system that can scale not just to two parts, but to three, four, five, seven, whatever parts, right? Hmm. And but the problem is. I mean, it's a very new field. It's moving extremely fast. There's new papers being released almost every few months that are big breakthroughs. Uh, currently, it's still somewhat slow to create these proofs, and it costs a lot of money and, and hardware to create these proofs. Um, there's new approaches like Plonky2, for example, which uh, are a bit faster. I think the proof generation time is in the realm of a few hundred milliseconds or something. Uh, and also checking time because this recursive proof is also relatively fast. Um, and interestingly, this Plonky 2 system works a bit like the tag. You have essentially one proof that proves that two other proofs are correct, and these prove again that two other proofs are correct, and the and so on. So it kind of like fans out, and this way you can you can parallelize the proof creation, uh, which speeds up this entire process. So I, I'm I mean I'm not an expert in zero knowledge proofs. I've been starting to look into these things, but so far i've been mostly looking into consensus related stuff right mm. um, and it feels like this should be possible to integrate that directly on layer one in the way that i describe but this is definitely a topic for the future mm. and since it's only related to sh like scaling the technology uh, i think it's also not something that's super important right now because right now we don't have much activity in the in the network yeah and by the time we have smart contracts and all of these things uh, I think the 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 zero knowledge space will also started to have to like converge to some degree at least, right? Uh, so you can leverage on on the work and an existing work in that regard. But yeah, it's definitely a super interesting topic. Uh, but I'm a bit skeptical the way it's done right now. Mm, yeah, fair enough. Um, what's the limitations for IOSA after Cordesite? Um. In, in what respect? <laughs> Probably just like the what what can the the IOTA technology kind of do compared to other competitors around in the space, I would guess. Yeah, there's nothing that we cannot do. I mean, okay, there, I mean, there's essentially one thing that you cannot do, and that's like totally ordering smart contracts in a non-deterministic way in the sense that, I mean, like, for example, in Ethereum, right? Like, uh, there's essentially two models. I mean, currently there's one model how to do smart contracts in the world, and which is this totally ordered system, which is essentially similar to a Turing machine, where you just have one transaction after the other, next, 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 and you just calculate the next state based on the previous one. And the problem with this approach, however, is that it doesn't really scale very well because, um, well, I mean, like we reached the 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 speed limit of CPUs simply due to the manufacturing limits in the nanometer scale that we've reached. If you make CPUs and transistors, like if you make transistors even smaller, uh, you will have a cross talk between these things. You will have quantum mechanical inter interfer interferences between the wires or like, a, it's not really wires, but uh, so you cannot make CPUs smaller. So what we're seeing in the DLTs uh, in, 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 the, in, the C, in the CPU realm is that CPUs just get more cores. So, so you scale out horizontally, right? So instead of having, having just one CPU, you have a quad core or an eight core, a hexa core, and like now you have 16 cores, 32 cores, and, and even more. Like it just gets, instead of having faster CPUs, you just have more of them. So if you always need to execute all transactions or like all state transition one after the other, you can just use a single CPU. Like you cannot make use of this horizontal scaling of the hardware that is existing in the in the world and 
so to solve these problems you need to be to you need to go multi-core like to to increase your your throughput like tenfold or whatever or like fourfold if you say we assume like quad core what would be the case even raspberry pi situation i think has there's quad core recipes um then to leverage this the scaling horizontally you need a different execution model and iota is essentially tailoring exactly to this execution model like we we can uh, speed up the parallelization of uh, smart contract execution to the absolute maximal degree uh, that theory allows there's this amdahl's law which essentially states um, that the most like the, the the maximum performance boost that you can get from parallelizing a computation uh, is bounded by the amount of non-parallel parts so if there are some things that use the same part and they need to wait for each other then that limits scalability uh, and in an iota we break down these dependencies to their causal relationships so that means we reach the absolute maximum speed up that you could possibly ever achieve in such a network and interestingly there's like some like sui for example they're doing something very similar they're also still in their testnet uh, phase and they also uh, use a somewhat simpler idea but i think the space in general is moving towards these pattern we also uh, have fuel um, uh, with the sway language is essentially going in a similar direction um, so i think it's definitely the the superior model but there are some things that you cannot efficiently do because there's some smart contracts like for example amm style liquidity pools um, that rely on this um, sequential ordering because everybody's trading against exactly the same pool and exactly the same state and this is something that doesn't really translate that well into the realm of iota mm -hmm. uh, because we can only process like a causal update and then the next one and the next one and so on so if you would have like let's say ten thousand people that try to swap against an amm style liquidity pool that would be completely impossible in ethereum something that could potentially i mean it's also impossible because <laughs> ten thousand uh, transactions on a single core you wouldn't even be able to process that so you're limited to like maybe 100 150 interactions or something per second whereas in iota you would most probably be limited to like three or four interactions mm. per second but this is per smart contract instance and i think this whole idea of of using pools for everything which is kind of coming from this totally order paradigm because the, the state transitions are so slow in, in blockchains that you cannot just do one and then the next one and the next one and the next one and do this like in the same way as we do it with iota so a lot of the use cases that we've developed are based on concepts that i think are not very optimal and there's different and better solutions that even don't have uh these problems with slippage like order book based dexes and stuff like that for example which i think will ultimately be the better option mm, cool. so so it's so in theory, it's not really a limitation. It's only a limitation if you want to build something like the way it was built before. Yeah. Well, it's it's way beyond my understanding, but but I kind of like get what you're trying to to explain there. Um, but still, some questions left there. Um, how far has the team progressed with the Mana tokenomics, and which Mana are you looking to implement with 2.0? I mean, for now, we use the MANA as it was before. So this is ICCA congestion control algorithm where MANA is essentially a deficit that gives you like throughput in regular intervals. So that means if you have like, I don't know, uh, three transactions per day, then you can send one every eight hours, which is not ideal for the user experience, right? And this is also the case if you haven't sent anything for a year, for example, right? So, so and I think it's... it's, it's 
I mean, it's not it's not ideal for the user experience. I don't think that any human would send a transaction every eight hours. I cannot plan my spending behavior ahead that I know, mm. okay, now I can send one or something. <laughs> you know, that doesn't make any sense. I Usually, I, I don't know, in the morning, I drive with the subway to work. I buy my ticket, then I maybe buy a Coke, and in the evening, I drive home or something. You know? Yeah. But I, I want to freely decide when I want to spend uh, this, these resources. And that's essentially also the reason why we kind of decided now that we want to go with this mana burn model. So essentially, by, you, you, by, by holding tokens, you receive mana, which is essentially equivalent to a throughput quota, and it just rises over time in the same way as you used to it in games, um, where you also have this mana bar, which fills up over time, right? And whenever you do an interaction, or you want to do something in the game, or in our case, in our network, uh, you you can spend some of that mana to pay for this uh, for this action. So it, it has a rate limiting function uh, in a way, in the same way as it, as it is with games. Like you cannot spam spells or you cannot just cast things all the time. You need to kind of like think about okay, when do I send something? When do I not send something? Uh, send something. But since payments, especially payments, are some stuff that you don't always do. I mean, you pay a few things a day if at all. You know, sometimes you don't pay something for two days or whatever. So it's not really, I, think, I don't think it's a huge user experience problem. And ultimately, I mean, if you have a network which has a limited amount of throughput, you need to deploy, like distribute the throughput somehow, right? And doing it proportional to the amount of tokens that people have sounds like the only reasonable way to do it. Because if you would not do it like that, and you would say like, hey, you, you give every account a certain throughput or whatever, then somebody who's rich would just make a lot of accounts. So you can just like split up his stuff. So the only thing that is not really gameable is just this linear uh, association uh, with throughput according to the tokens that you hold and then just give people throughput quota over time. And I think it also makes a lot of sense to do this because we're having a resource that inflates linearly with time. So I have like 1000 TPS now and then the next second and the next second and the next second. So I have a resource, mana, which is also inflationary over time, and, the, and it grows in the same way as the throughput that I can consume grows over time, right? So you, you have a very healthy system in a way. Mm. Um, but currently, this is not implemented yet. But I mean, we're only talking about the changing the scheduler, which is not too much code. It was mostly, a, I would say, maybe like a political discussion or like a discussion or clash of ideologies uh, that we had when we discussed these ideas. Um, yeah, but but this is also more relevant for things like once you have layer one smart contract and stuff like that. So that's something that might come after Qualicide because the current solution also works. It's just not so nice if the network is fully congested and you need to wait hours between your transactions it's just not so cool mm. but especially in the beginning when the network is not fully congested it's fine you can use it yeah um so what's the best way uh, in your mind to onboard new developers for shimmer and iota well um i think what we should definitely strive for is the best user experience you could possibly ever have right like i think if anything is matters then it's the user experience and i mean the idea of having a network that doesn't incur fees and allows you to use the network repeatedly without losing your tokens is also essentially about the developer and user experience right and i think we should just strive to build this simplest and, and 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 best system as possible i mean currently we're not really there yet because we're still struggling or, or not really struggling but busy to to implement the consensus so yeah i don't know i mean it's 
currently we have we have Shimmer with the upcoming Shimmer EVM, which gives people the tools to build. But as I said, I'm not such a big fan of layer two simply for the economic fragmentation that happens by putting uh, projects on layer two. Uh, so I think we should definitely strive to to have layer one smart contracts as well. But I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's it's, it's mostly about opening up the ability to 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 code stuff. And I mean, I'm just speaking also from private experience because before I was running IOTA, I was uh, uh, working on this uh, cheating platform for League of Legends, right? And the the interesting thing is that when we built this this uh, platform, we we didn't write a single cheat ourselves, not a single one ever. We just provided the framework. Uh, for people to build their own scripts so we build a framework uh, that allowed people to to uh, hook to certain events to read some information to interact with the player and then people just build the scripts themselves you know like and there was a huge amount of participation we, it got really huge in a very short amount of time but mm. what this shows is that you need to you need to give people the like you, you essentially need to build shovels and pickaxes instead of applications and tools yeah <laughs> and i think that's one of the problems that iota has been uh, had, has had in the past a bit we've been trying to build everything ourselves from identity solutions to like all kinds of other things you know like we even had this abra and cupla and like all of these programming languages at, at some point i think we should just be pragmatical and, and look at the space i mean we've been doing that already over the last years anyway because we tried to solve our problems and we gained a lot of insight about other projects so we can just leverage on this knowledge and just look and choose the best option for all of these different things and just integrate them and i mean we're currently exploring uh for example layer one smart contracts we're looking into move we're looking into fuel and to other projects and i think we would just pick the one that is has the best developer experience and fits best to our concepts mm. so and what's your opinion about assembly oh, i mean i'm not really involved in, in these kind of discussions you know but it's, it's a similar aspect as what i um as i as i said before that i think i mean if you want the iota token to have value right you want the network to be used you want the, the, the layer one to have utility the only reason why mana would have value and give you like financial benefits because you can sell it off to people who need mana for example uh, would be because the layer one is congested and there's a high demand for throughput and there's high demand for this network so in the end, at the end of the day, the job of a DLT is to sell block space, right? So now the question is, if you have assembly and you have these like layer two smart contracts, I mean, once the network is congested, you want to scale in that way. Okay, it makes sense. I can understand that. But starting with that assumption and saying, okay, we build everything on layer two, I think that's a bit problematic because it just takes away use cases from the layer one. Mm -hmm. um, because then suddenly a lot of activity happens in layer two and these layer twos only settle in regular intervals in layer one. So that's one of the reasons why I think it's, it's very important to have layer one smart contracts because you just want to drive demand for layer one throughput. Otherwise, the Yota token is just doesn't have any like economic value and reason to exist in the first place. Right? Mm -hmm. This boils very much down to the discussion that we had before. So that's the reason why I'm not such a big fan of assembly. Um, but I do think that, I mean, it definitely makes sense to also have layer two rollups. So I don't, I don't think I want to only have layer one uh, smart contracts because you also want to give people the opportunity to have uh, sovereign rollups. Like, for example, let's say there's a, a company that has a very specific use case, a business use case. 
uh, that they want to run and they don't want to compete with all the throughput in layer one, but they still want to settle on, 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 on the same layer one, then they can build their application specific rollup to use the DLT and anchor the information and secure their network essentially by settling on layer one. And I think that's a very valid use case, especially for these like application specific rollups because you can do a lot of optimization there. Um, and the zero knowledge uh, circuits also become relatively small most of the time if you don't try to build a general purpose ledger. Uh, so I think for these kind of use cases, uh, assembly and like layer two projects would make sense, but from an economic point of view, I think I'm more of a fan of trying to build layer one smart contracts. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Um, has it been difficult to stay motivated due to all the changes, um, all the pushbacks, as well as you be sort of uh, treated as a celebrity by the community? <sighs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, there were some times in the foundation when I was kind of frustrated <laughs> uh, because for a very long time, I think uh, we haven't really been aligned because I wanted to build something entirely different than what we have been researching. Um, and yeah, I mean, like there, there were definitely times where I was like, oh man, what am I doing? <laughs> you know, uh, but ultimately, I think what IOTA has proven is that if you have good arguments, I mean, it might take some time to convince everybody because we are a lot of people, right? And, and we've also been coming out of a situation where we essentially trusted one person, CFB, and um, then the concepts didn't really work out. So people are, of course, very cautious when somebody comes around and says like, hey, guys, I have a completely new idea. It's with parallel realities and stuff. Let's do this, you know? Then, of course, people say like, okay, wait a second. <laughs> the science is a bit weird and we don't understand and you need to explain and stuff. So so it's understandable, but I think we also wasted a lot of time working on these uh, old concepts. Um, but now I think it's no longer a problem. We're all pretty much fully aligned i mean there's still maybe some points when it comes to some very specific details where we have maybe some small disagreements but this is just natural as is a part of the development process to evaluate all options and to just uh, yeah hear everybody right mm. uh, so i think right now it's good but in the past it was very very frustrating sometimes yes yeah i can see that um and we have and yeah also like a, just one last thing maybe it's also like the community for example is always very much i don't know it feels like they're looking for some kind of leader figure messiah whatever <laughs> you know it's really a bit strange because you i know it, it gets really boring in the speculation channel after five years speculation yeah. back when coinbase so you kind of need someone to to be the firework and i think that when you post the uh the tweets and like the the hard statements uh, which kind of like is thinking outside the box. I think people like register that and see that that's a, a uh... yeah, it was also tricky because I'm, I mean, I'm a person like I, I don't like to like, I don't know, like hold back information or not talk openly or whatever, you know, if there's a problem, mm. let's talk about the problem. If somebody thinks there's a criticism or something doesn't work, man, then talk about it. Don't mute this person interact with them you know but there's also f like in the same way if people ask me questions about what's the progress where you stand i i mean i i say my or my 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 opinion in that moment and my opinion might also be wrong especially when it comes to etas and time estimates i'm horribly i've been horribly wrong um for for numerous reasons like for example the reason that i just named that it took much longer to convince people to actually work on this than i was anticipating mm -hmm. uh but this is just one reason of course the technology is also much more 
complicated than I originally thought. Like I thought like, okay, how long can this take? You know, and now I know, oh my God, this is actually a really complex thing. Yeah. Um, so lines of code. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it, it, the interesting thing is that now at the end, it kind of is turning into this a few lines of code, but arriving at the very specific design of these lines of code is not so easy. Yeah. Like if, if you look at our current code base, for example, everything is like its own, like module, right? I mean, people talk about modular blockchains. I mean, we've built the most modular thing, whatever, like everything's a module. You can exchange the clock, you can exchange the consensus, you can exchange the finality. Everything is a module, you know? And each of these modules is not very big. I mean, like clock is like 50 lines of code, uh, like the storage layer is like, I don't know, like 40 lines of code or something. I, I, I mean, like abstracted into smaller packages. We have a lot of these things, right? But each package itself is very manageable and very maintainable. Hmm. Yeah, well, it, it makes pretty much sense that that this type of technology, you, it's hard to predict. Um, and some people might get a little bit too attached to an ETA. Uh, and for those of you that doesn't know what an ETA is, it's an estimate. It's not a fixed date. So um, next time we get some sort of ETA out there, please like take it with a grain of salt. Um, yeah, and also... Well, sorry for interrupting, but one thing that I just wanted to add is like when when I'm talking about ETS, I'm trying to share what is going on in the GoShimmer team, right? I don't talk about deploying something on mainnet or whatever. So if people tell me like, okay, when are you going to integrate the new consensus or whatever? And I say like two weeks, then this is my estimated time of when we will merge this thing into our develop branch when people can run the code and experiment and play around with it, right? And so it's not even that much off, but I think people often estimate this as being some deliverable in the context of something released on some mainnet or something, right? And that's definitely not going to happen in the next three or four weeks, even like, or, or whatever. Like we're, we're getting to a point where the code base is stable, stuff is running, where we can test things without the network breaking every like few minutes or something, right? Yeah. Where we don't no longer have bugs, where the code base can be maintained and 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 improved in an iterative fashion without having to rewrite everything all the time. So that's essentially the point where we're heading to. And once we have the stable prototype, there will be some time period necessary to test these things because before we can actually roll it out in Shimmer. Um, and of course, we also need to write documentation and tips and like th there's a lot of just administrative tasks around the things that we've been coding and doing that are still pending simply because we didn't have the time for it or it was just not important by the time you don't write you don't write uh, specifications for your algorithms if your algorithms are still changing a bit every now and then you know so you only do that at the very end when you know exactly how everything's supposed to work yeah um we do have quite a lot of projects already building on shimmer which is very exciting um has there been any of the new projects that have been catching your eye I mean, of course, I, I know uh, like the big projects like Sooniverse and stuff like that, right? Like uh, I've heard about them, but I have to admit, I have not really looked into these things at all. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm just so, bu like, so busy. I mean, I'm getting up at like 10 in the morning, right? I, I work until usually until like four, then I need to pick up my daughter and take care of her for like two, three hours. And then I start working again in the evening, most of the time, sometimes until two, three, four in the morning, then I go to bed and I get up at 10 again. So I'm, I'm sleeping very little. I don't have much time. I mean, I, I, do, I essentially don't have any private life. You know, I've been living here for four years in Sweden. I think I have two friends that I've seen like two times in the last year or something. So it's, it's really intense and but it's also like i mean i just want to be done with it you know i, I mean it's, yeah. it's also something that really interests me and everything but 
it's yeah i mean i'm i'm i didn't have time to look into these things to mm. be honest yeah. this is sad because i also i don't have a single nft you know when i don't I'll have anything so. <laughs> so if 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 all of this ecosystem takes off i will stand there and have nothing <laughs> kind of <laughs> but it's well, fine I'm, I, I mean i don't need it i'll send you a monaco captain um that's a good thing <laughs> um thanks and um we'll see you we'll get you out of that uh, private life and that comfort zone once we are able to go to to monaco and do the celebration um i do have one last question though uh we are looking about an hour now um it's a very important question and i'm not sure if you're able to to to, to tell me the answer for it but i did think you you actually kind of did earlier in the episode um, when can we expect core decide? Well, that's a good question because I mean, as long as it's not done, you know, it's, it's really hard to estimate how much time does it take to clean up everything? Because like, for example, in the, in the last three weeks, I think we, we started refactoring the way we organize state. So we, because we have, we have to take into account, like, for example, if we apply some transactions and the node crashes, what do you do? You know, like, how do you recover from this crash situation in the blockchain? These things are extremely easy because you just process the blocks one by one, you know, and like if one fails, you just process it again and then, and the state recovers in our technology is different because we don't really have these fixed blocks. So if you apply changes, how do you roll them back? How do you roll them forward? How do you create commitments and all of these kind of things? It's really tricky. I mean, I've, I've never really thought about this aspect of the node before because the development was mostly focusing on getting the consensus right and everything, right? But now that now this is done, we need to address these things. And I thought that would go really fast because we can just use the same schemes and stuff that everybody else is using, but it looks like uh, or it, it took us now almost three weeks uh, to, to finish and finalize some concepts, like how all of this makes sense and also that you don't write information twice and stuff. So this took, for example, much longer than I thought. Um, I mean, I'm very happy with how it looks like right now. And I'm currently, or like I'm going to write the description of the PR right after this episode and hopefully going to be merged tomorrow or the next day. Um, but this is a, like a prime example of how it's a bit hard to predict how fast you progress because everything in our code base is new, right? There's no precedent. Our technology is so different. It's really hard to anticipate how long individual building blocks will take i think that we're really approaching a point where things become extremely stable because the biggest problem in the past was that the network essentially when you when you spam too much conflicts or whatever it just crashed because there were race conditions they had a nil point exception or whatever you know the code was so unorganized it was really hard to debug these things so the main focus right now is to get the code base into a state where it's ex like completely stable where there's no obvious bugs of course there could be bugs that we just can't find in our internal testing because we don't test certain situations or whatever this and usually the reason why you want to have a public test net to really uh, have something that people use and can play around with even things that you don't expect um and i think that this i mean i'm not supposed to say etas i've also promise myself to not do these things again right so let's just say we're we're getting very close now i mean also in, in particular to to christmas being around the door and just yeah uh, it will most probably take a bit longer than i'm thinking because also then after new year's maybe some people are still on vacation for example the yota foundation is also gone for the first week in january so yeah. things will definitely delay a bit, little bit like in that respect uh, but as soon as the mvp is stable which i definitely expect to happen 
latest maybe sometime mid of february or something and now it's said an eta again <laughs> oh, gotcha. yeah but but i mean like we, we're getting to the point where we where we should be or where, where it should be done kind mm. of right and then from that point on we will of course still have to uh move everything to the hornet code base because as everything right now is essentially a research prototype we're already trying to write the code in, in a way that we don't need to rewrite it because hornet and goshimmer they're both stemming off from the same code base we even have this common repository called hive.go where we have all the common libraries that we use uh, so there's a large overlap already between hornet and, and goshimmer but it's, i mean hornet is a mainnet node it's much more maintained it's much more mature the code base in the context of how the the, the node itself runs, right? I'm not talking about the consensus algorithms and, and, and the tang and how everything of that is implemented because I think there we're already maybe uh, a bit better than Hornet because Hornet is also something that has grown over time and they never really had the time to do everything clean. And we now in Goshimmer essentially coded everything from scratch in the last ones, right? So I think we're at a very good point in that regard, but integrating that into the framework with the APIs and like to make all the wallets be interoperable with this uh, node software and, and so on, that's definitely going to take some time. And I, I have honestly no idea how long that will actually take because I've never worked with the... Uh, with the um, API for the wallet and like, I have no idea how Hornet and Firefly interact and stuff like that. I mean, we have Muxer and, and, and Alex on our team who have been working on this. So uh, it's not that there's no expertise or whatever, but I personally just have a hard time estimating how much time this will take. I mean, mm. I would say it shouldn't take too long because ultimately the API shouldn't change too much. I mean, the, of course, you don't have the API endpoints for milestones anymore because they don't exist. And maybe you have now some epoch-related API and stuff. But at the end of the day, a transaction is confirmed or not. I mean, that's more or less the same thing. So I hope it goes fast. But I think some of my colleagues are a bit cautious uh, when it comes to these things and think there might be delays in that regard. Uh, especially when it comes to also like exchange integrations. We've seen that uh, firsthand. Uh, with the Chrysalis migration, how long it took for all the exchanges to upgrade and do all of these things. And I mean, there's definitely going to be another upgrade step necessary with Callerside. So if you consider all of these external externalities as well, uh, also poss possibly asking audit companies to look at the code and stuff like that, there potentially could be some source for delay. But I mean, yeah, yeah. I don't know. No. I mean, when the tech is done, if, if you then need four weeks longer or six or, or maybe it's three months or whatever, the longer than you expect it, if everybody sees it works and you can play with the technology and you, you see it works, I think it's maybe also not such a huge problem. Mm. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I really appreciate the, uh, the full answer there. Um, and that's all the questions I had. Um, I would love to do another one down the road. There's so much more that I would like to talk to you about. And I, and I think next time we do have to talk a little bit about the UFO crisis that you made me go into. I went down that rabbit hole. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm totally not like I'm, I'm not sure that these things exist, right? Might be, but I think it's definitely an interesting question to think about and ask. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I've been doing probably 100 hours of Joe Rogan podcast lately, just diving into <laughs> that. Um, so anyway, um, but thank you so much for taking the time and I'm looking forward to see what you and the team are able to, to do. Um, I think 2023 will be a great year for all of us. Um, maybe not price-wise because the world is currently a little bit on edge, but um, tech-wise, hopefully. Yeah, I think we're really getting there. I mean, it's also, it's it's really hard to to 
to explain how everything feels. You know, we've been essentially on this Odyssey for, I don't know, I've been joining in 2018. Now it's 2022, the end of 2022. And I've been working on this and ex like expanding the ideas and going back to the drawing board and fixing something and going back mm. to the drawing board. And it felt like a never ending story. And now we can finally see the light of the tunnel, you know, like, it, and you can also see it in the in, in how other people in the foundation react. Like, for example, I always talk to Jonas. Uh, he's like a really capable engineer. He's like super smart guy and everything. I said, like, man, you need to become active on Twitter. You're such an interesting person. And <laughs> like, you know so much about the technology. And it's, I mean, like, it's, it's really a bit sad that I'm the only person who's vocal about our tech, you know. And um, I think now we're at a point where even Jonas felt like, okay, this is going to work. Let's <laughs> let's get the message out, kind mm. of, you know. Yeah, so, because the, so I uh, think the tweets that you guys a... are doing is really valuable to those that are kind of sitting on the outside, not really understanding the GitHub and like reading the code and all the, uh, keeping an eye on all the different Discord channels, right? So if they can just go into Twitter and see that you guys just being excited and you're doing the job and everything is going as it should, then it's just a real like confidence booster. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's also the most important thing that Foyo does currently is just to regain confidence. Our tech is going to be absolutely amazing, but the problem is that people just don't trust us anymore, right? For, mm. for very good reasons, I have to admit. I yeah. mean, like if you if you if you if you think about it, like I've been joining in 2018, and like of course I was promised all the time, and I I, I, I mean even I did estimations are completely off right like especially early on when i didn't know that much about the dlt space yet uh, i think it was like 2019 or something after we uh, released this uh, fpca ca paper and stuff i thought like oh this is super easy to implement because the the consensus algorithm was not very complicated we did simulations that you could code in like a week or two or whatever so i thought like okay this should be should be should be done very soon and i made these statements that people hold still hold me accountable from from back then you know and then i realized oh, wait a second okay we have a voting mechanism that's actually very easy to implement but we don't even know what to vote on like we didn't we didn't know which conflicts existed in the tank where they began where to attach like all of these kind of problems and i was like what the fuck okay and, and that was the, the 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 time when i had these ideas for this parallel reality based letter state because by the time i realized okay there's there's uh, like if we if we know which conflicts exist and where they start and which part like which block references which conflict then we can just build cfb's version and then ever since i tried to push for that direction but we kind of had already embarked on the other direction so it took a while to change course mm, absolutely um there is tons more to talk about and uh, i would love it if you have some time in the not too distant future to do another one um or if there's probably after some some sort of extra development from here um but thank you so much for for taking the time and thank you guys for listening yeah thanks you for inviting me and uh, sure we can have another talk i mean especially in the next month when things get a bit more calm and then i think there will be plenty of opportunities fantastic mate see ya okay. yes ciao ciao